Welcome back. We are continuing our discussion on the doctrine of the Trinity. In the previous session, we started talking about the character of God as the key to understanding this doctrine. I am convinced of this fact, that Muslims have problems with Christian theology, with the doctrine of the Trinity, incarnation, and atonement, because Muslims have a fundamental difference about the issue of God and the character of God and the identity of God. Although on a superficial level, the Quran, the Quranic portrait of God is very similar to the biblical portrait of God, but it fundamentally gives us a different, different picture of who God is and what he's like. So I'm putting my fingers on five areas of differences between the Quranic picture of God and the biblical portrait of God. And in the last session, we started talking about the, 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 my first point, which was the knowability of God. In the biblical presentation, God has revealed himself through his actions in history. In the Quranic presentation, or in the Islamic theology, God is fundamentally unknowable. We can only know his will and his commands. The second area of disagreement, I want to start talking about it now, is the issue of the intimacy of God. In the dominant Quranic picture, God's relationship with humanity is that of a master and a servant. Now, now, there are some Quranic texts that talk about the nearness of God to people. Nevertheless, the notion of God's intimacy with human beings is not developed, neither in the Quran or Islamic theology. Now, Sufi Islam is different, but we will not address that issue right now. In fact, many people believe Sufism, Sufism came up in Islam as a reaction against this distant portrait of God in Islamic theology. There are a few verses that talk about God's intimacy with people in the Quran. I will give you some of the references. We will not look into them, but I just want you to note them. Note them. Surah 2, verse 186. Surah 34, verse 50. Surah 34, verse 50 talks about God hears all things and he's always near. Surah 56, verse 85 uh, also talks about God being near, near to people. Surah 57, verse 4 talks about God being with people wherever they go. And a favorite verse of, uh, for many Muslims is Surah 50, verse 16. Surah 50, verse 16 says this, It was we who created man, and we know what dark suggestions his soul makes to him. And then this phrase, For we are nearer to him than his jugular vein. Now, Muslims are very fond of quoting that phrase, that God is closer to us than our jugular vein. However, this verse that we just read is in a context, uh, is in a very different kind of a context. It's in the context of angels recording your deeds for the day of judgment. So it's not about saying how God is intimate with us, it's that God is going to zap you and break your neck if you disobey him. The overall image is that of a sovereign master who is far above and beyond the struggles and tragedies in the human realm. And he cannot be approached by man on very intimate terms. Muslim theologian Shabir Akhtar makes this observation. This is a Muslim theologian. This is not a Christian saying this. He says, Muslims do not see God as their father, or they don't see themselves as the children of God. Men are servants of a just master. They cannot, in Orthodox Islam, 
typically attain any greater degree of intimacy with their creator. Uh, w. Montgomery Watts, a very famous scholar of Islam in Scotland, made, made this observation. The Quranic conception of the relation of the human race to God is dominated by two words. The first word is abd, A-B-D, abd. And the second one is rab, R-A-B-B. Abd means slave, and rab means lord. Surah 51 verse 56 has an insightful comment. It says, I have, supposedly God is talking, I have only created men that they may serve me. Now, so we see that the dominant image is that of this master. Now, how about the biblical portrait of God? Now, there is no doubt that the Bible also presents us with a sovereign God. But the biblical narrative also describes God's relationship in very intimate terms. God's relationship with his people is described with imageries like a father who teaches his child to walk, a shepherd who carries his lamb in his arms, a lover who woos his beloved to himself, and even a husband who longs for his unfaithful wife to return. All of these images are anathema to Islam. Islam just doesn't have a problem with the image of God as being our father. The Quran has no room for understanding of God as a husband who pleads with his unfaithful wife to return. Some theologians look at the various images used of God and divide them into three categories. There is a category, uh, metaphors used of God, uh, taken from a national setting, like God as the king or God as the judge. There are metaphors used of God that uh, depict God in terms of a work or crafts or, a, or a, a vocation, like God as a shepherd, as an artist, as a potter. But there are images used of God in the Bible that are taken from the context of family relationships. And it does, these are especially the problematic images according to Islam. So a primary biblical theme of God is, is the depiction of God as our father. In the Old Testament, God's relation to Israel is likened to that of a father and a son. Deuteronomy 1.31, as one example, talks about how God, as a father, carried his son, the people of Israel, and, and, and took him to a safe place. And then a beautiful passage in prophet Hosea, chapter 11. It talks about, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. God talks about teaching his, his children. He says, uh, I, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I love this verse. It says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. There are even passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 66, verse 13. We won't look at them, just you can note them. Isaiah 66, verse 13 or Isaiah 49, verse 14 and 15, that talk about the love of God as, as a motherly love. There is another beautiful image of God, used, uh, image of God uh, used in the Old Testament, that of a husband. God is the faithful husband who loves and remains faithful to an unfaithful wife, Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3 talks about that image. I will come back to that later. 
And then when we come to the New Testament, we see this image develop between the relationship, in the relationship between Christ and the church. And then we see how the climactic scenes in the book of Revelation, we read about the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible talks about other images of God. God as a friend in Jeremiah chapter 3. God as a lover. So throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden to the climax of God's redemption in Revelation, we are confronted with the God who dwells with his people and desires to have a relationship with his people. And then we see that one day this will be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4, that one day the dwelling of God will be with men and he will live with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the kind of God we encounter in the Bible. Once again, we need to ask our Muslims the basic question, what is God like? What kind of a relationship does God want to have with us? What kind of a relationship can we have with God? This is the point I'm trying to make. There is a phrase sociologists use that in English we say plausibility structure. Basically, every society, there are certain things in every community, in every society, there are certain things that are believable because of certain assumptions. So what I'm trying to do in this presentation on the Trinity is to talk about plausibility structure. Of course, it's ridiculous to think God would become man according to the Islamic worldview. God is out there. We are his servants. Why on earth could that, why on earth would God do that? And how could he do that? But in the biblical narrative, the incarnation becomes the climax of what God has been doing all along. If God is a kind of a God who wants to be intimate with his people, of course it would make sense for him to become man, to be incarnated in the flesh. Because this is a God who's always been after intimacy with his people and after relationships. That's why I keep coming back to this issue, that the big issue is the character and identity of God, not all our theological differences. The third point I want to talk about is a little bit controversial even in evangelical theology, and many evangelicals would disagree with the way I'm phrasing this point, but I don't want to, it's okay to disagree with the, with the way I'm phrasing it, but I think we agree on what I'm trying to communicate. The third area of difference between the Quranic portrait of God and the biblical portrait of God, I'm terming the suffering of God. Not only do we encounter a God who is knowable and wants to make himself known. Not only we encounter a God in the Bible who wants to be intimate with his people, but we encounter a God who feels the rejection and the sins of his people. We encounter a God who is not indifferent to human brokenness and human rebellion. Now, let's talk about the Quran first. By now, it should be obvious that there is no such concept of God in Islam. The emphasis on absolute divine transcendence and majesty and strength allows no room for God identifying with the suffering of his people. There is no room for God to experience any emotions in Islam, least of all the experience of suffering. Now, God, the God of the Quran, shows mercy to human, to human beings by sending them prophets for guidance. God sends prophets to various people groups, 
but judges the disobedient nations when they don't listen to God's prophets. And he usually judges them by destroying them. And the Quran repeats, I mean, repeats this theme very matter-of-factly uh, throughout uh, its, its, its verses. Let me give you an example of what I'm trying to express here. Let's look at the example of Noah in the Bible and the Quran. Uh, there are uh, seven passages in the Quran that have a more extended treatment of the story of Noah. We will not look at all of them. And uh, actually, and there's also a whole chapter in the Quran called Noah, chapter 71. As you read the Quran, you'll see how stories are often repeated throughout the book. And sometimes new additions are added in different chapters, but basically same stories keep repeating themselves. In all these passages of the Quran about Noah and the story of the flood, we see that Noah warns his people, they disbelieve in his message, and God sends the flood to destroy the unbelievers. Period. That's the end of the story. The readers are not told anything about how any of this, the sinfulness of the people, the judgment of God, affects God himself. The Bible, on the other hand, presents a very different story. The Bible presents us with a God who suffers because of the disobedience of the people. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7, we see how repeatedly the writer says God was grieved and God was angered. In the space of two verses, three times we are informed that God was grieved, filled with pain, and grieved. An Old Testament scholar, Klaus Westerman, makes this observation. He says, Yahweh's regret is so important for the author of Genesis that he puts it before the decision to destroy and repeats it again after the destruction. This is the key to understanding the flood story. Another prominent Old Testament scholar in America, his name is Walter Brueggemann, and he makes this comment. He says, the narrative is not about the anger of God, but about the grief of God. It's the simple truth that God experiences pain when his holy love is rejected. God does not decide on his judgment with cold indifference. The divine judgment and the divine pain are two sides of the same reality. This is an incredible balancing act in the Bible. God in anguish visits judgment upon the rebellious, rebellious people but he doesn't cut off his relationship with his people. A God immediately turns from the role of the judge to that of a fellow sufferer. The prophets of Israel reveal God as a wounded lover, a husband who feels the pain of betrayal because of the unfaithfulness of his wife, and a father whose heart is broken because of his rebellious children. Let's look at Hosea as one example. Hosea describes the relationship between God and Israel in terms of the intimacy of a husband and wife, father and child. But because Israel went after pagan gods and idols, God brings a charge against his people and says, you are like an unfaithful wife, you are like a rebellious child. Abraham Heschel, a Jewish thinker of the 20th century, makes this observation. He says, God is conceived not as a self-detached ruler, but as a sensitive husband to whom deception comes. But God nevertheless goes on pleading for loyalty, uttering a longing for a reunion, a passionate desire for reconciliation. Hosea is able to express the love of God for Israel in vivid terms, as compassion, as a mother's tenderness, 
as love between husband and wife. Another theologian makes this observation, the image of God in the book of Hosea. He says the image here is not that of some general having problems tolerating acts of insubordination. No, God is a parent who grieves over his rebellious child, but God can let go of his child. Listen to this observation. He says, God has been rejected both as parent and as husband. God is like a person who has been rejected not only by his spouse, but by his children as well. God suffers the effects of the broken relationship at multiple levels of intimacy. The wounds of God are manifold. Let's go back to the image of God in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah starts by, I will read from verses 1, and then I will jump to verses 12 and verse 14 in Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah says, a God speaking through Jeremiah saying this to Israel, If a man divorce his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have, this is God telling Israel, but you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Israel had gone on after pagan idols. And then God says, would you now return to me, declares the Lord. And then verse 12, and then verse 14. Go, proclaim this message toward the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am merciful. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you. What is going on here? What is the meaning of that first part of Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1? If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her first husband again? Would not the land be completely defiled? That's the reference to the Torah, the eternal word of God through Moses to Israel. Yahweh commands to his people that a wife who divorces his, her husband and marries another person cannot go back to the first husband. In a symbolic way, God is saying here in Jeremiah, I will pray, I will put down my own word. Will you come back to me? God is pleading for idol worshiping Israel to return to the original husband. God is suffering not because he's weak, but because he is love. And if you love, there is always the risk of rejection, betrayal, and pain. None of this suffering can have any space in Islamic theology. But if God suffers, then it makes sense for the cross. God, who wants to reveal his heart to us, God, who wants to be intimate with us, God, who shares in our suffering, all the way we see this from the Old Testament. This is all about Yahweh, the character of Yahweh himself. It makes sense then. It's believable, it's understandable how that God would become man in Jesus Christ, reveal the heart of his Father to us, be intimate with us, and suffer on the cross, sharing in our suffering and pain. So we need to ask Muslims about the character of God. Is God indifferent to our human suffering and situation, or is God involved in our human brokenness and rebellion? Our difference on the Trinity is not about philosophy. It's about the question of God. What kind of a God do I believe in? What kind of a God do I worship? 
end. How has this God revealed himself to us? Our time has come to an end in this session. We will continue and finish our discussion on the biblical portrait of God uh, in the next hour.